Okay. John's Gospel, John chapter 9. If we could have one of the ushers open the doors back there. Thank you. John chapter 9. I hope that you have taken the opportunity to read ahead. Um, at the first service, we did a verse-by-verse -verse study of the remainder from chapter 9, verses 13 to 41. We did a verse-by-verse -verse study of the text, but um, I don't know that we're going to do that at this service, so you'll kind of see what I mean. But hopefully you read ahead so you kind of you know the, the storyline, the account and all. What is that? <laughs> I'll tell you, we have had, we've had so many distractions. We, we're going to have the full worship team. And then, anyway, one thing happened. We, we actually had our worship at the end of the service, at the first service, and the teaching at the beginning of the service. So it's been a crazy day. Anyway, if you're with us, or if you're familiar with John chapter 9, you know that Jesus... He comes across this fellow who was born blind. And um, as we saw last week, his disciples asked the question, Lord, who sinned, uh, this man or his parents? They just had, you know, they were confused about it. Why would someone be born blind? And, of course, Jesus went on to declare that um, his blindness was really uh, an opportunity for God to glorify himself. And so he went on to um, spit on the ground. He made clay uh, out of the saliva. He anointed the eyes of the blind man. He tells, tells the blind man to go to the pool of Siloam and to wash his eyes. And, and that's what we saw last week. And of course, the man comes back. He's able to see uh, his neighbors and those who were acquainted with him who knew that he had been blind. They begin to ask questions, you know, is this that fellow that was, was blind, you know? And some said, eh, you know, it looks like him. It's not really him, but it looks like him. And others are saying, no, 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 it's him. Until finally he said, it's me. I'm, I'm the one. And so we, we pick up in verse 13, and, uh, and we'll look at that. But, but I want to actually, at this service, I want to draw your attention to verse 35. And, and in verse 35 is the first time that the fellow actually sees Jesus. I pointed this out last week. It's worth noting, and I think it's important, and I think there's a wow factor in this healing account, because the man had not seen Jesus. He didn't know what Jesus looked like. I mentioned last week that Jesus could have been standing right next to him. And when he was questioned by the Pharisees, as, as we see uh, in verses 13 on down, as, as they were asking, who is he? What did he do? How did this whole thing, you know, come to be and all? Jesus could have been standing right next to him, and he wouldn't have known that it was Jesus because he had not seen him. Um, so verse 35 is the first time he actually sees Jesus. Um, <clears throat> the account tells us that he has been excommunicated. He's been kicked out of the synagogue. And that's a big deal for uh, if you were a Jew. And especially if you're a Jew at that time. I made mention to the first service that we have so many options, you know. 
you don't like this church, you could go down the street to the next church. I mean, there are so many churches in any given community, pick one. Uh, and a lot of people make the rounds, you know, we've tried this and that and this and that, and you kind of do the, the steeplechase, you know. And, but I'll tell you, for this fellow, he had no option. There wasn't a synagogue down the street. Uh, when, he would boot, when he was booted out of this synagogue, he was out. So it was a big deal. But in verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he, Jesus, had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? Now, you'll note next to the word God, there's a note. And the note tells us that it could also be rendered, and some of the manuscripts read, do you believe in the Son of Man? And you know, if you're familiar with the scripture, that the Son of Man is one of the many titles of Jesus the Christ. And so Jesus asked the question, do you believe in the Son of God, the Son of Man? And he answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And I love this. And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Now, he believed in Jesus on that day. It goes on to say, you know, he, he believed and he worshipped him. But what does it mean? What did it mean for him to believe in Jesus at that point in time? Jesus had not gone to the cross. Jesus had not paid the penalty for his sins at, up to that point. Jesus had healed him. Jesus had done a, a, a wonderful thing for the man. You know, I mean, this is the very first opportunity he had to ever in his entire lifetime. We don't know how old he was when this happened. But for the very first time, he's able to see what a blessing that is. What a wonderful blessing. And he believed in him. What did he believe? I believe that you are the son of God. I believe that you are the son of man. I believe that you have power to heal blindness. I believe in you. I was thinking today that, um, you know, Christianity in, is under attack. I think Christianity's always been under attack. True biblical Christianity is under attack. I don't think that the enemy, I'm speaking of the devil, and yes, I believe in the devil because the Bible teaches us about the devil. I don't believe that Satan cares much if we're involved in religion. I don't think that Satan cares if we're, if we're uh, meditating on a mountaintop or, or chanting some mantra. I don't think he cares about that. I don't think he cares if we go to a church of dead orthodoxy. I don't think he cares if we're committed to a local or, or a you know, national denomination or global denomination. I think he is absolutely threatened when people truly believe in Jesus Christ, the, the person, not the concept, but the person. They truly believe in him. And having believed in him, they're now seeking to walk in him by the power that he provides. I believe that Satan is, is absolutely threatened by that because he knows that, that the person who truly believes in Jesus for salvation, who believes in Jesus, the finished work that he accomplished on Calvary's cross, that person has been given as a 
guarantee of the redemption, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who we see in Genesis 1-1, the same Holy Spirit that we see moving and filling and working in the different prophets and, and saints of the Old Testament, the same Holy Spirit that we see coming upon the church, that 120 that were gathered in the upper room, that upon experience uh, there in Jerusalem, and then later at Cornelius's house when Gentiles were gathered and, and he, the Holy Spirit, came upon them in the same way that he came upon the church in Jerusalem. I believe that the enemy is threatened by that because he knows that a man, a woman, who's truly believing in Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, being filled with the Holy Spirit, oh, all things are possible. You say, where are you going with this? Christianity is under attack. That means Christians are under attack. Because Christianity is not a thing. Christianity describes what we are. We are Christians. We are followers of Christ. And... We need to recognize that we are walking around with a, a target on our, on our backs or on our chest. And the enemy wants us to fall. He wants us to fail. He wants us to mess up. He wants us to blow our witness. He wants, he wants to give the, you know, himself, the enemy, opportunity to slander Christ and the cause of Christ. Jesus asked the question when he was on the earth. He said, will the Son of Man really find faith on the earth when he returns? And I don't know about you, but, you know, that question seemed kind of puzzling to me. Especially when I first got saved. When I first got saved, um, it was kind of the tail end of the Jesus movement. And it just seemed like the Lord was pouring out his spirit on all sorts of people, some of the most unlikely people. And there were many people who were were being set free from from drugs and alcohol and Satanism and and the Eastern mysticisms and, and, and all of these things, and they were coming to Christ. And they weren't just coming to Christ and going to church, but these people were truly on fire for the Lord. These people would have testimonies. Maybe you've heard some of them. I remember hearing... Some of our brothers, they were walking down in Huntington Beach by the pier, and there were some guys, they were tripping on acid. And uh, they came up, they met these uh, three Christians, and, and they were just kind of, you know, doing their thing. And these three Christians shared the gospel with them. This was a common occurrence when I got saved, when Tracy was, was born again at 16, Jesus' people were everywhere. They were everywhere. I've told the story many times, you know. I'd go to the grocery store to buy hamburger meat for my mom, and there would be Jesus freaks there to share the gospel, standing out in front of Alpha Beta. Uh, I'd go surfing, you know, which I did on a regular basis. That was kind of my thing. And I'd paddle out into the water, and um, usually it was my sister setting me up, you know. She would kind of point over at me and and uh, say, uh, oh, have you met so-and-so? And she'd introduce me to a Jesus freak. 
I'm not saying this in a negative way, freak, by the way. This sounds offensive to people, but you had to live during the time. Because during the time, everyone recognized that everyone's a freak. It's just, what kind of freak are you? But a Jesus person, and they would begin to tell me about Jesus and share the gospel with me, and I couldn't wait for the next set of waves to come so I could escape, you know. But the gospel was preached by the most unlikely people. They were unlikely people who had truly believed in Jesus Christ. They were praising him with their life, not just with their mouth, but with their life, they were praising him, and God was using these people. I think of how many of these people, especially out of the Calvary Chapel movement, though it wasn't the only movement that God was working in, but many within the Calvary Chapel movement, God was using unlikely men to go out and pioneer churches all over the country. God was using some of these unlikely men to be involved in the most amazing things. You know, uh, Mike McIntosh, who was Tracy's pastor when she was 16 years old, Mike McIntosh, came to faith in Christ uh, after spending time in a mental hospital. He was on LSD. Someone shot a, a gun off next to his head. He was convinced that the sight of his head was blown away. He lived like this for a period of time. And... Uh, he actually showed up at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. There were some brothers. Pastor Chuck, of course, was there. They were praying for people after service. And he came up and he said to Pastor Chuck and those who were gathered, he said, I believe that my head has been blown away. I need a healing. And they prayed for him, and the Lord filled that man with the Holy Spirit, and that man went on to pioneer a church in San Diego and hundreds of churches out of that one church. He was involved in the Philippines in the, in the late 70s, and, and, and to this day, you know, in, in Latin America, and the Lord had used that man. But that story had been repeated over and over and over again. Again, do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, what do we do when people who believe mess up? Some people, because their faith is not strong, it's not grounded in the Lord, they don't really have a personal faith. They have a faith because I like this guy or I really connect with this gal and they're, they're believers in Christ and so you know, you're kind of hitching onto their faith. But if that same person was to stumble and fall and uh, really, you know, make a, a mess of their life, then what do you do with your faith? Do you still believe? Or do you abandon your faith? Do you conclude, well, it must not be real? Based on what? Well, because they fell. If they fell, then it must not be true. Do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe in the Son of Man? You need to have your personal faith in the Lord. And that faith needs to be developed. It needs to be, it needs to be fanned into a flame. How do we do that? We read the word. We believe the word. We stand upon the word. You know, a lot of people, a lot of Christians, you know, if you were to say, do you believe the Bible? 
they would say, of course I believe the Bible. I remember saying that. I said that when I was, when I was chanting, when I was saying my mantras, meditation, all of these things. Do you believe the Bible? Sure, I believe the Bible. Follow-up question. Have you ever read the Bible? No. Maybe a follow-up question for many, or follow-up question for many professing believers. Do you read the Bible? And it might be shocking to hear, no, not really. And yet faith comes by hearing and that by the word of God. Christianity is under attack. Christians are under attack. We're watching it. It's happening all around us. And rather than fixing our eyes on each other, how they're doing or not doing, and letting that be the barometer of, of our own personal faith, we need to be people who are walking steadfastly in the word of God. You know, guys, um, there's a lot of good causes out there. But there is a great cause. The kingdom of God. The great commission. Sharing the gospel with lost people. I think that well-meaning people professing believers are getting involved in things that are actually distracting them from the main thing. They're not keeping the main thing the main thing. But this is a good thing. Yeah, it's a good thing, but it's not the main thing. And you're distracted from what the Lord has really called all of us to. And that is to be light, to be salt, to be those people who cause a, 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 a thirst for something more. Isn't that how it, how it works, guys? Uh, you know, there are some people, maybe through, you know, just the Lord moving, there's no intervention of, of humans, you know, in their life, they come to faith in Christ. But I think that most of us would have to testify to the fact that it's through his people that we come to faith in him. We meet someone. They share the gospel with us. Maybe at first we just kind of say, I have no interest in you. You know, Tracy and I, when I started dating Tracy, I was, I was infatuated with Tracy. I mean, it was a, it was a I want to say love at first sight, but you can't really say that because it wasn't really a love. I just thought she was really cool. And I thought she was really, really cute. And, and I was infatuated with her the very first time I saw her. She didn't even know I existed. But after a few years, you know, went by, a week before she graduated from high school, uh, we ended up meeting up. And, uh, and from that moment on, man, we, we started dating. And I fell head over heels, and I think it was a mutual thing, you know, and, and we've been married for 45 years, going on 46 years here, and, but, but I knew what I was getting. I knew that I was dating a Jesus freak, because she used to take my sister, my little sister, to Horizon, well, it was Calvary Chapel San Diego at that time. 
And they would go down on Thursday nights and they would go to concerts and evangelistic uh, meetings. And my sister would come back and she would say, oh, Danny, you need to be saved. You need to be saved. I said, oh, bunk. I knew what I was getting. My wife, my girlfriend, Tracy, like many people, compromised to be with me. I think it's apparent that she compromised to be with me. I'm thankful that she compromised to be with me because the story ended up working out. We've known many people over the years. They compromised, and it's never worked out. Their spouse, that non-believer that they compromised for, they've never come to faith in Christ, and it's a hard <laughs> a hard life to live uh, when you don't have that, you know, that that st strand of, you know, three cords, you know, that the, the, the husband, the wife, and the Lord uh, binding it all together. But, you know, my wife compromised once we were married the first year. I mean, the very first months of our marriage, I think she realized, man, we're married Danny's not saved. Um, this is going to be hard. And she would say, Danny, please, can we go to church? Yeah, we could go to church. So we'd go to church. We'd try this. And oh, man, that was weird. We're not going back there. So we'd go to another church and another church, and another church. And because God is such a gracious God, and he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. At that time, he was hooking me up with different people. He hooked me up with a Vietnam vet named Oli. That was his nickname, Oli. He was, his parents were from Russia, first generation uh, Russians. Uh, they had come to the States, they were first generation to come to the States. Oli was a um, patriotic ex-Marine. And he was my journeyman carpenter. And I worked with him side by side every weekday. And he would share the gospel with me. And then he invited us to a home Bible study. And I said, well, you know, that guy I work with, Oli, he invited me to a, us to a Bible study. She said, oh, Danny, please, let's go to the Bible study. And we went to the Bible study. And I remember what, what kind of grabbed my heart more than anything was we're sitting in the living room of this house in Santa Barbara, and we're all sitting on the floor, and the fellow who owned the house, who led the Bible study, picked up a guitar and he started playing his guitar, and all of the people started worshiping the Lord. They all knew the songs, the words to the song, that, that, that kind of took me by surprise. And then his little daughter came up, and she was just swaying and singing every word of the worship songs to the Lord, almost as if we weren't there. This little girl, she would raise her hands there in her own living room, and she'd praise the Lord. And I just looked at her, and I thought, boy, this is so strange. I've never seen anything like this. And we'd go through the Bible studies, and... I remember one night we left, and I thanked the folks for letting us come. We had been going for a few weeks, 
And I said, I don't know what's happening here, but I'm feeling something. And they smiled and they said, it's the Holy Spirit. And I thought, well, that's odd. What is the Holy Spirit? We ended up moving to Northern California. And that's when I really saw my wife uh, return to what she was. We met a Christian couple our age. I was working with him. He was a contractor. I was one of his carpenters. He would share the gospel with me. They would come over to our house. We would go to their house. I mean, it was like this. We were like inseparable, the four of us. And I remember looking at these three, and I remember thinking, they have something that I do not have. I am the outsider in this foursome. I am the outsider. And the thing they had is not a thing. It's the him, the who they had, and that was Christ. And I, by God's grace, received him as my Lord and Savior. Do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Isn't that wonderful? And then Jesus could say to this man who was formerly blind, he said, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. You say, where are you going with this? You're just rambling up there. I know I am. Paul talks about examining ourselves to see if we're truly in the faith. I think this is something we need to do on a regular basis. You know, I know that even in a small group like this, there's probably varied views on the Lord's return. Some, they look at the scriptures and they say, Jesus is coming back, second coming. He's coming back on a white horse, Revelation chapter 19, 20. You know, he's, he's, he's returning in that way. Um, every eye will see him, every tongue will confess, not for salvation, but acknowledgement that he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And some of us, others of us, we say, well, yeah, we believe in the second coming, surely, but we believe that when he comes at his second coming, we'll be coming with him, the church will be coming with him, uh, those other riders on white horses. And we believe in the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. When those who are dead will be raised. So the resurrection, we call it the first resurrection in the Bible. And those who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall be with the Lord always. Second coming. Well, second coming, we can kind of figure out when that's going to happen. Second coming, it will happen three and a half years after the abomination that causes desolation. What is that? When Antichrist sets up on a wing of the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, an image of himself causing all great and small to worship him. Three and a half years from that, second coming. 
But the Bible says, no one knows the day or the hour. So could it be speaking of something else? Could it be speaking of the rapture of the church? You know, sometimes I think it gets confusing for people. They come to church and, and they might hear that the return of the Lord is imminent, which means it could happen at any moment in a flash. The Lord could come at any moment. Um, that's what the Bible teaches. So the Bible teaches both. I personally fall on the the ground that there will be the rapture of the church because we know that a time is coming upon the earth. It's called the Great Tribulation. Jesus says it's a time like no other time since the creation of the world. It's going to be horrific. Daniel tells us the time that's coming is going to be so difficult, so hard, uh, more difficult than anything that's ever happened since there's been a nation, Israel. So it's going to be a difficult time. But that we're not subject, the church is not subject to the wrath of God. That the Lord will remove his bride from the scene before the wrath is poured out upon this Christ-rejecting world. Do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus is coming. It's interesting, you know, you look at our world today, and I Again, considering the words of Jesus, when the Son of Man comes, will he truly find faith on the earth? And sometimes you wonder, I don't know, Lord. (laughs) I, I don't know. I hope you'll find it with me. I hope you'll find it with us. I hope that we've truly placed our faith in you and we're living for you and in you. This man almost seemed, at least as I read through the account, and I mentioned it last week, he almost seemed emotionless. He didn't seem very enthusiastic about the fact that he was blind from birth, but his, but his eyes were open, his, his eyesight was given to him by simply going and doing what Jesus told him to do, to go to the Pool of Siloam and to wipe off the spittle mud from his eyes. And it happens, and, and, and what we don't see with this fellow is we don't see him jumping for joy or shouting or anything. He just seems very humdrum about the thing, you know, as I mentioned last week, you know. He looks like the guy. Could it be the guy? I'm him, you know. I mean, his eyes are open. The only thing, as you read the account, the only thing he had been able to see thus far, according to the account, was the Pharisees, the religious leaders, interrogating him and his parents because they wanted to know how he received his sight so that they could, because they had already come to a conclusion about Jesus, he's deserving of death. We just need, you know, some charges that will stick. You look at the account, his own parents didn't even seem to be that enthusiastic about the healing, the, the, the eyesight that was given to their son. In fact, they seemed more concerned about their standing among the Pharisees and the synagogue than they were about their son. You would think that they would have said, listen, we don't care what you do to us. Our son was blind. He was born blind from death. Now he sees. He says that this man... Uh, uh, put mud on his eyes and told him to go to the pool and, and he went and now he sees and 
I don't know. I don't know who he is, but we stand with our son. We rejoice with him, but we don't see that. What do they say? He's of age. Ask him. We're not getting involved in it. And I look at this count, account and I just think of how, oh, Lord, it's almost like a picture of our, of our Christian culture today. There seems to be such a lack of enthusiasm about what the Lord has done for us. And if we're not enthusiastic, and I'm not saying that we should be phony, but, 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 but if we're not genuinely enthusiastic about what the Lord has done for us and in us, that he saved us, why would anyone else want to tag along? Why would anyone else want to believe in him? You see what I'm saying? The church is under attack. Christians are under attack. We need to recognize the attack, and we need to do all we can to stand our ground and, and, and to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be filled with the Word of God and to be filled with hope and filled with the Word of God. And all of these things, we need to do our part because, well, what's at jeopardy? Well, it might be your husband. It might be your wife. It might be your kids. Parents, do your children wake up seeing you read the scriptures or praying over them? You could ask, you know, I, I, uh, my kids, some of my kids in their young, adult, older, teenage, man, they sowed their wild oats. They were involved in things that they never should have been involved in. And I'll tell you, those children, those three adults now, you know what their fond memory is? My mother would agonize in prayer for my soul. I mean, you know, they, they'd also say the same thing. I'd come home, you know, middle of the night or early in the morning. My mother would be sitting there on the couch. She'd be praying for me. I don't know how she did it. You know, it's kind of like the athlete, you know. Why do athletes always say, thanks, Mom? You know, was Mom the one throwing the ball with her? You know, but Mom had such an impact upon, you know, many of these athletes. They're always giving credit to the mom. But I'll tell you, my children, they give credit to their mother. Where credit is due. They say, my mother was a prayer warrior. She prayed for my soul. She set an example. An example for what? Well, if the Lord tarries, God forbid, but if the Lord tarries and some of their children grow older and rebel, they've already had the example. What do we do with this kid? Throw him out on his tail? No, we agonize in prayer for his soul, for her soul. Oh, Lord, reach them. Oh, Lord, save them. Do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then the Lord then he, excuse me, then he, the formerly blind man, said, Lord, I believe. 
I believe. I believe. Nehemiah, come on up, please. Lord, we pray. Would you stand with me? Lord, we pray that each of us would not just say those words, I believe, Lord. I believe, Lord. But there, there would be fruit of it. I was thinking, Lord, as you know, I was thinking of what Paul wrote in Galatians, as a man sows, that he also reaps. And, and that scripture, that truth, that biblical truth can be taken, well, it can be taken both ways. The man, the woman of faith, sowing the good seed of faith, will reap, oh, how wonderful. Or, the man, the woman of said faith, sowing the wrong seed, reaping the wrong harvest. And I think that's what we're seeing today, Lord. There's sowing, there's reaping, but I don't think it's a harvest that you intended. Lord, would you please pour your spirit out upon us in a fresh way? Lord, would you please revive us spiritually, that we would long for the things that you want us to long for, that we'd invest our time and our energy in things that you want us to invest our time and energy in? that we would be faithful people, faithful parents, faithful children, that we'd be a people who are looking for the coming of our Lord with the words Maranatha, freely flowing from our lips. Would you please, Lord, do a work? We need it so badly. We pray for our brothers and sisters that are struggling in their faith. We pray for our brothers and sisters that have uh, fallen. They have messed up. They're in a bad place right now. They're, they're, reaping, they're reaping a harvest, apparently, or it, it seems, of, of, of destruction. But Lord, they're still yours. And, and there's still opportunity we pray, Lord, as you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, we pray for our fallen brothers and sisters that you might restore them because we know, Lord, that that is, that is always your heart, restoration. So, Lord, would you do a work that we could surely not do on our own, but we long for that work to be renewed in us. Thank you, Jesus.